This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. The Morro Bay Bird Festival starts soon, and on today's show, you'll hear from the executive director and from a keynote speaker. We have a lot of birds that spend the winter right here. It's a good place to come and look for birds. Also, the Grape Nut learns about the Wine History Project of San Luis Obispo County. So going back in history, just realize that grapes were probably fermented and made into a beverage at least 10 to 12,000 years ago. Mm. These stories coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, January 8th, 2024. I'm Carol Tangeman. Let's start with the Morro Bay Bird Festival. I sat down with the executive director, Chris Cameron. So, Chris, let's go with the numbers. Let's start with some numbers about the festival. What are the dates, first of all? The dates are January 11 to 15, so it's a Thursday through Monday. It's always been held over Martin Luther King holiday, and that may change in the future, but that's where it's been for the last 27 years. Oh, 27 years. That yes. was my next question. We had a couple of years of COVID uh, that they were planned and organized and ready to go, but COVID canceled it, so we had them online. But an online bird festival is not quite as fun as an in-person bird festival. No, and a lot of people I know come, they plan a vacation around it. Yes. So how many events do you have? There are over 200 events. That would be field trips, workshops, keynote speakers, uh, all all kinds of things. Uh, Boat trips, kayak trips, bike trips, hiking trips, uh, everything you can imagine to go look at birds. And you have a pretty wide range of areas that you go to as well. 99% is all in San Luis Obispo County. We do have a couple trips a little further north, a little further south. For the people coming in from L.A. or San Francisco, they can do a trip on the way in or a trip on the way out. Okay. So how many volunteers? Do you have any staff? We do not have any paid staff. We have a pile of staff, but they are all volunteers. And so we have a board and we have a committee. But then the volunteers who actually come and help pull the weekend off, there's about 200 volunteers. About 100 of them would be bird festival trip leaders that are going to go out and lead trips on a boat or a kayak or bike or walking around. And others help in various ways with hospitality or setting up chairs or name tags or just crowd control, things like that. Yeah. And how many months do, say, the core planners spend getting ready for the festival? We plan 12 months. Okay. (laughs) This is something we do all year round because we're serving over 800 people. So there are over 800 people who have signed up for the festival to come on the various trips. And how many of those do you think are local and how many are coming into the area? Probably two-thirds are from inside 934 zip code and at least a third Over 200 are from outside of the area. Yeah. Do you know how far away some people come? Do you have We have people people from, oh, about 15 different states coming. And often we have people from other countries. I don't think we have someone uh, international this year, but we have about 10 or 15 states. And I know we have lots of birds here. How many different bird species do you generally expect to see? Well, you know, 200 birds is is about all the birds that you could see. If you are lucky, um, if and if you really try hard, on this weekend you could see over 100 birds. Oh, that sounds great. In fact, great. We, have, we have trips called a big day where people just go and see how many birds can I see in one <laughs> day. And so that's their goal. Not to get a close look, not to 
you know, concentrate, but just to see them and count them off. to Check them off on the list. Go away and say, I saw over 100 birds today. Oh, I love it. So let's get into um, some of the details. What is it about Morro Bay, the central coast, that makes it such a great spot for birding? Well, birds migrate. You know, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe 40% of birds worldwide migrate. That's a lot of birds that are moving around. And they're moving for uh, better food or better chances to have babies to reproduce. Those are the things that move everyone to, to eat and to reproduce. And... And so during the winter, they go from the far north where it's cold and icy, and they come down to southern areas. Some of them come down this far and say, this is good enough. There's good food and there's good friends and I'll just stay right here. Others continue to go down to Costa Rica and down to South America, even further south, down to Antarctica. But we have a lot of birds that spend the winter right here. And in fact, there's a thing called the Christmas bird count. It's been going for many, many years. Mm -hmm. Audubon? Is that an Audubon? It's an Audubon event, yeah. Yeah. And all the Audubon people get together and try to see how many birds, different bird species, and how many actual birds are in their area. And it's a it's a friendly competition, and Morro Bay always comes in in within the top five of the nation. That's impressive. So That's this impressive. is always happening in the winter, and in the winter we have a big pile of birds here. So it's a good yeah. place to come and look for birds. How do you encourage people to come to the area just throughout the year for bird watching? Well, we really don't. Our whole event is the Morro Bay Bird Festival okay. that happens in January. Audubon Society has trips throughout the year, and we may expand to do a fall migration or spring migration, but at this point, all we do is the one bird festival in the winter. If you're just joining us, my guest today is Chris Cameron with the Morro Bay Bird Festival. Now, I did notice that there were some events for kids. Is it hard to get kids to get excited about birds? I know they love birds, but when I think of birding, I think of patience. I think of, you know, being able to be quiet for a long time. How does right. that work with the kids? Right. You, you normally are thinking of a middle-aged person um, <laughs> uh, with a, a, an advanced degree and some money to buy a $2,000 pair of binoculars and go out and sit, which is the normal birding. By the way, just a little offshoot, I don't know if you know this, but there's more money spent on bird watching in the United States than hunting and fishing combined. That's a, that's a yeah. huge... Uh, amount of money that comes from people getting outdoors and just to go watching. different places to look at birds mm-hmm. yeah. and photo- photograph birds yeah. as well. Um, so most of the people that in America that look at birds are usually middle-aged and older. There's, there's, this, there's this funny joke. Uh, it says, I used to be young and hip on the dance floor, and now I'm looking outside and saying, is that a yellow-rumped warbler? Which <laughs> so is just true. age creeping up on you. Yeah, And you take an interest in other things you didn't as you're young. But in many other countries, the youth are the leaders in the bird watching, And we're hoping to encourage more youth here in the United States to do bird watching. So registration for youth is free, and lots of the events for youth are free. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we do have events for youth and led by youth. And what actually. kind of events? Well, we have simple, easy bird watching for youth. We have bird watching discussions, we have some bird watching field trips, um, we have some journaling trips, we have bird box building trips. So we have several different things for youth, and those are all free for the youth and teens. So what are some of the cool places that you like to go? 
for seeing birds? Well, I live a couple blocks away from Sweet Springs, which is um, a preserve uh, purchased by the, uh, the Audubon, Moro Coast Audubon. And since it's so close to my house, I love to just go down there in the evening, and we love to hear the great horned owls hooting in the evening. They're getting ready right now to start their nesting because they're the early nesters. And so it's just a, a, a riot to go and hear the great horned owls hooting, and then the belted kingfishers with their rattle, and then to see the osprey and sometimes a bald eagle. And we have all kinds of birds down at Sweet Springs. So that's one of my personal favorite spots to go. Yeah. Now, do you ever actually see the owls? I must say, I have heard a lot of owls. I have seen very few. Yeah. Hearing them is easier than seeing them. They are masters of, we call it camouflage or protective coloration, because they sleep in the daytime and they have to blend into the trees or something will eat them. So they are, they are amazing um, camouflaged birds. Mm. And how about the condors? We do. We have, we have a couple of different events with condors. Steve Schubert, one of our really excellent naturalists, he is going to be talking all about condors. And, you know, we have condor releases not too far from here in San Simeon. So it's always possible to see condors on this trip, too. Let's say someone wants to go birding. And what do, what do you take with you? What do you leave at home? You know? Yeah, you you mainly, uh, since you're going to be outdoors, you're thinking about weather. Am I going to be too hot or too cold? Is it going to be misty? Is it going to be rainy? So you take the appropriate clothing. But oftentimes rain clothing is, is slick and noisy. So you try to wear some quiet clothing, more more cotton or wool than than slick things that will make noise. And it's always nice to have a pair of binoculars. Uh, to get a little bit closer. But even without binoculars, you can learn bird behavior, bird movements. Are they high in the tree? Are they in the middle of the tree? Are they on the ground? Are they in the water? And and so you can learn a lot about bird behaviors even without binoculars. Okay. So proper clothing, water bottle. A snack, yeah. Yeah, what would you leave at home? Every, everything else. I would just bring a water bottle, a snack, and binoculars and proper clothing. You just don't need anything else to go bird watching. And a camera. Oh, yeah. If you're a photographer, and that's a great thing about bird watching. You, if you're, you know, humans are collectors, and we collect coins or bottle caps or, you know, garden pots. Um, but when you're a bird watcher, you can get that long lens and take a close-up snap, and you can get a collection of those. And it's a great addition to the hobby. Since photography is a natural extension of bird watching, we have several master classes. So you can go learn from an expert. We have experts that are published experts, published in really, you know, well-known journals. They're photographs and calendars and all sorts of things. And they're going to come to teach people how to take photographs. Mm. One of our local heroes is Don Quintana. He lives in... Um, Los Osos, and he leads trips all over the world, but he will be here leading a master class, as will several other people. If you're just joining us, my guest today is Chris Cameron with the Morrow Bay Bird Festival. So online registration is closed. Yes, it closed Thursday, January 4th. And many of the events are already full. Yes. So for anyone who hasn't pre-registered, you know, is there any way? What, what what should we do? Those of us who maybe 
are just saying now. Well, that the, fir- good. the first thing you do is go to your calendar and write November 1st on your calendar <laughs> to, to register for it. the next year. I get Our it. registration I get it. happens in November. So that's the first thing. The other thing is come on down. We have some events where you can just walk in and talk to some folks and look around. We have a family day and we have um, Meet the Raptors with Pacific Wildlife Care. So we have some free events for walk-in people. But if you'd like to go on a trip or two, there are always some people who drop out at the last minute because they're sick or whatever. So we always have a few spots opening up, and you can register on site. You can walk up and register on site. Now, you know, the truth is 95% of all the trips at this point right now are full. But By the time you walk up, there will be a few more people drop out and there will be a few more surprise spots, probably to some events that you would really like to have gotten, but you couldn't because they were snatched after the first five minutes of registration. But if that person gets sick and has to drop out, that trip might be open for you. Take your chances. Take your chances. Absolutely. And so then all that information is on the website. Right. And what's the website? It's morobaybirdfestival.org. Click on the registration button, and you can find what trips are open, Mm -hmm. and that's a constantly um, updated list. Okay. If you're just joining us, my guest today is Chris Cameron with the Morro Bay Bird Festival. Well, Chris, this sounds great. Anything else? The thing that's important to me is that this is an ecotourism event, and, you know, we live in work here on the Central Coast, and it's a lovely spot, and we all love being here. Um, College students come, and they don't go home, you know, because they love this spot, and that's great, but there does have to be an economic driver, and the great thing about bird watching is we're not digging minerals out of the ground or cutting trees down or or polluting with um, a nasty industry. People come from out of town. They bring some money. They come here, they eat at the restaurants, they stay at the hotels, they buy souvenirs to take home because they love coming to the coast. And for us, it's a non-extractive way to provide income into the community. In fact, that's why it was started 27 years ago. The city of Morro Bay came to the Audubon Society and the California State Parks there in Morro Bay and a couple other groups and said, we need some help. Our Hotels and restaurants are dying in the winter. We need some help. Can you help us? And so we said, yeah, let's look around. What's great? We have great birds in the winter. So that's why the Morro Bay Bird Festival has started to become an economic benefit to our community. And it has. It brings hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of income to our business people that live in the area. As we know, those of us who have been here a long time, that the winter weather is really nice. It can be. Now, last last year it got rained. uh, We got a lot of rain. And when you make national news, people are a little bit nervous. Um, But we still had the bird festival rain or shine, and we will have it always rain or shine because the birds are here, rain or shine. So you just put on your slicker and you go on out and you watch birds in the rain if there does happen to be rain. But we're hoping that we have good weather this year. Well, thank you, Chris. You're welcome. MorrowBayBirdFestival.org. Click on the registration button, and you can find what trips are open, Mm -hmm. and that's a constantly um, updated list. 
You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Carol Tangeman. We have more to share about the birds. Up next, author Jennifer Ackerman speaks with KCBX's Brian Reynolds. Today we are joined by Jennifer Ackerman, science writer and author of the best-spelling books, The Genius of Birds, The Birdway, and most recently, What an Owl Knows. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. You'll be uh, presenting at the Morro Bay Bird Festival, and then on the 15th in the afternoon also at the Slow County Library, making a presentation there. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, I've been writing about nature and science for more than three decades now, Uh, and I've written about, gosh, all kinds of subjects, whales, dragonflies, genetics, the human body. I've written about oceans and microbes, but my books on birds and their intelligent behavior have really been the high point for me. Um, I've loved birds since I was a child. I went bird watching with my father in Washington, D.C., and I just loved finding birds, identifying them, and figuring out what family they belong to. But it was really later as a science writer that I discovered uh, an even greater fascination in really learning about their brains and their behavior. Is it fair to say that the research into this topic is, has it been ongoing over the years, or was there a burst of like a, an aha or an epiphany moment? Yes, there has been a real uh, rash of research on um, bird intelligence and bird brains really over the past couple of decades. And as a science writer, I like to keep tabs on you know what's, what's going on in the literature and science and nature magazine and, and, and some of the more technical publications. And I noticed that there was this trend toward um, really fascinating papers on um, bird communication and bird the new uh, understanding of the anatomy of bird brains and their uh, very intelligent behavior. When I read bits and pieces of, of the book, especially the, uh, the Genius of Birds, I, I was literally bowled over. I never even had a glimpse in my consciousness that the pejorative term bird brain couldn't be more wrong. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I've had uh, I've had my own observations of very intelligent behavior with crows. I've seen crows um, stacking crackers to carry them off in a in a big pile, <laughs> and and lots of other examples that uh, that I've seen myself. But then also there are studies going on around the globe, and you know, until really quite recently, we we thought that a bird's behavior was driven pretty much solely by instinct and that its brain was so small and primitive it was really capable of only the very simplest mental processes. You know, we thought smart behavior required a big brain with a a layered cortex like we have. But birds have really taught us that there's more than one way to shape an intelligent brain. And now we understand that birds actually have as much cortex-like brain as we do um, for high-level thinking, like decision-making, problem-solving, planning, and particularly songbirds and parrots. And their brains, they're not organized the way that ours are. Um, Mammals have bigger neurons, and they connect distant brain regions. Bird neurons are much smaller, but they're very densely packed in those little brains, and they're concentrated in brain regions that are really essential to intelligence. And that makes them highly efficient at mental processing and capable of some quite astonishing mental feats. Are some uh, breeds of birds smarter than others? Yes, parrots and corvids, you know, crows, ravens, jays, they're really the Einsteins of the bird world. And they have intellectual abilities rivaling those of our primate relatives, um, chimps, orangutans. 
And there are corvids such as the the new Caledonian crow, which is just a, a champion problem solver. And it also makes and uses its own sophisticated tools, kind of on par with the big primate tool makers. Parrot, think of the African gray parrot, can grasp meanings of hundreds of words and really understand abstract ideas, do basic math. But other kinds of birds are also highly intelligent. There are lots of different kinds of intelligence in the bird world. Some birds have very astonishing memories. They can remember where they put their food caches in thousands of places over dozens of square miles. All kinds of different sorts of intelligence that we're really just beginning to understand. Is it safe to say that the research has followed two different pathways, some in the wild and some in laboratory? Yes. Interesting research is coming out of both lab and field. But studying bird behavior in the wild has really yielded some very, very interesting results. Because when you're in a lab, you can measure the kinds of things that you can give a bird a task to do, say, opening a very tricky box that has a treat in it. But it's hard to know just what you're measuring. Are you measuring the, the bird's kind of boldness and comfort with a human-made device? When you actually can study birds in the wild, you can see their, their natural forms of behavior and, uh, and the natural kinds of intelligence. There's arguments about when people, uh, the human race, developed their own separate consciousness. Do you think birds uh, or some birds have a, a self-awareness, a consciousness? I think absolutely they do, and it really depends on how you define consciousness. It's a very thorny topic, and there are lots of different definitions, but the, the one that I think of when I think of, of animal consciousness is just an awareness of being in the world. And birds, they certainly have tremendous sensory capacities, but they also have really tremendous social intelligence. They form, you know, pair bonds and bonds with, uh, with their flocks. Some birds can even understand what's going on in another bird's mind. If, if that male bird is courting the female, he will keep track of what she's already eaten and what she might desire. So there are lots of, of different aspects of this that I think that suggest that, that birds, in fact, do have, have consciousness, at least by that definition. I think as human beings, we tend to be dismissive of other creatures and their individuality. And maybe it's a guilt thing, you know, like um, a pig is smarter than a dog, and yet uh, we eat bacon and pork chop. Maybe there's a, a certain amount of denial uh, that kept this research uh, in the background. Yes, I think there is a definite bias. You know, we consider ourselves the most intelligent beings on the planet, and there are lots of things that we can do very well. But as um, birds have shown us, there, there are some capacities that we don't do very well that actually birds do much better than us, and one of them is navigation. Birds can find their ways from place to place across thousands of miles without the benefit of, of GPS or um, navigational devices. They actually have the, the mental equivalent of some of these satellites and GPS and compasses in their brains that enable them to find their way from place to place, you know, put us in the same situation and we would, we would have great difficulty um, navigating the way that they do. I'd like to remind everybody, I am Brian Reynolds for KCBX, Public Radio for the Central Coast. Today we're joined by Jennifer Ackerman, science writer and author of various best-selling books on birds, The Genius of Birds, The Bird Way, and most recently, What an Owl Knows. Jennifer will be visiting our area, attending and presenting at the Morro Bay Bird Festival on the 12th, 13th, and 14th. 
and then also uh, at the Slow County Library on the 15th and in Santa Barbara at the Audubon Society January 16th. So please uh, mark your calendars for that. Jennifer, what about birds and humans interacting together? I mean, the first thing I think of is falconry, um, where people since ancient times have used birds of prey to, to catch game. Um, are there other kinds of examples uh, where there's been bird-human uh, cooperation or mutual to mutual benefit? Yes, there's a fascinating example of birds in Kenya, Tanzania, Mozambique. They're called honey guides, and there's people that actually hunt for honey. And the birds will guide them to the beehives, and the people whistle or they will do a little call to the birds, and then the birds will uh, call back, and then they will hop from from tree to tree, and leads these honey hunters to the beehive, where the, the honey hunters actually open the hive, they remove the honey, and the honey guides, these birds, get to eat the wax, and they don't have to deal with these very angry bees. The humans actually smoke the bees out of the hive, so both parties benefit. It's this really extraordinary example of, of cooperation. I want to say they're called cowbirds, they will sit on the back of a cow and and lunch on uh, dine on ticks and fleas and other parasites and and to to the cow's benefit. Yes, that's another great example. You know, it's a symbiotic relationship. Both animals benefit from the presence of the others. I know that there's research uh, ongoing into trying to understand, for example, whale songs. Why do they do it? What are the what's the stimulus for that? I've heard loneliness is is one of them. But uh, are, is anyone studying bird language and, and whistles to try to understand if they have syntax or semantics and so forth? Yes, absolutely. It's really one of the fascinating aspects of this research. Um, birds can communicate in ways that resemble language. And I think, for instance, of the calls of uh, chickadees, which are actually considered by scientists to be among the most sophisticated and precise systems of communication in any land animal. Here's the thing. The number of the little DDDs at the end of a chickadee's call, those actually indicate the predator's size and hence the degree of threat that it represents. So more DDDs actually means a a smaller, more agile, and, and therefore more dangerous predator. And other species of birds actually understand the chickadee's language, and they heed the warning, and they'll join in to to mob the predator, whatever it may be. That's beyond fascinating. I was told, or I read years ago, that most bird song was um, a bird that would be chirping to identify itself as the owner of that tree branch or that food source, and it was sort of a threat call, I'm here, this is mine, stay away. Absolutely, yeah. So what you're talking about is territorial calls, and certainly birds have um, territorial calls. I've just you know, written a book about owls, and they are very territorial, the hooting that we hear. I'd also like to just say, you know, all of the songbirds of the world, they learn their songs and other vocalizations the same way that we learn language, and it's really a remarkable process. It's called vocal learning, and it's very rare in the animal world. It was actually Charles Darwin who called birdsong the nearest analogy to human language, and, and he was really right. Any last thoughts as we get to wind up, the things you want to leave with our listeners? Yes, well, I think the, the bottom line is that birds are far more intelligent than we ever imagined, and they have kinds of intelligence and ways of knowing 
that in some ways exceed our own and are still very mysterious to us. You know, take a look around you. You can see intelligent behavior in the everyday interactions of birds in parks, in your yard. And, you know, the last thing I'd say is just that I hope understanding all of this really encourages people to care even more about birds and making sure that that our children and our children's children have the, the chance to see the birds we see and to learn about them. I am Brian Reynolds for KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. Today we were joined by Jennifer Ackerman, science writer and author of various best-selling books about birds, including The Genius of Birds, The Bird Way, and most recently, What an Owl Knows. Jennifer will be visiting our area, making various presentations at the Morro Bay Bird Festival, the 12th, 13th, and 14th, the 15th at the Slow County Library, the 16th in Santa Barbara, the Audubon Society. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I hope to be able to attend some of your events. Thank you so much, Brian. It was a delight to be here. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Carol Tangeman. Up next, a favorite episode from the archives. Betsy Nash, the grape nut, sat down with Libby Agron, director of the Wine History Project of San Luis Obispo County, in January of 2023. Here's their conversation. I know we usually look forward at this time of year, but on our first program, we're going to look back, way back, (laughs) way back to the beginning of Slow County's relationship with wine. I tell you what, we've got the greatest guide, the historian and founder of the Wine History Project of San Luis Obispo County, Libby Agron. Libby, thank you for coming out. Really appreciate your taking the time. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. Libby, it's always been my assumption that the people who built the mission in San Luis and San Antonio, San Miguel, all of our other missions, brought vines with them. Is that what we're talking about, about starting the history of grapes and wine in Slow County? Well, yes, in a way, but we actually have natural grapes that were growing here that were used by the Chumash for food, not not to make a beverage. Um, but Really, the history that we have in our county today is multifaceted from many, many cultures. And that's one of the things I love, because not only has it brought the individuals here with their culture and their agricultural practices, Mm -hmm. but it's also brought diversity of the grapes that now are used to make the wonderful wines we enjoy. Would it be safe to say that, except for those that the Shumash were eating, that everything else that produces wine in this county was brought from someplace else? Yes. Um, most all of the, the varieties here are from some other part of the world. And it's because those domesticated grapes were domesticated in whatever place, Central Europe, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, or in other places. So going back in history, just realize that grapes were probably fermented and made into a beverage at least ten to 12,000 years ago. Mm. In our county, each culture that arrived brought their own cuisine and brought their own grapes and wine tastes. Mm -hmm. They didn't always bring the grapes with them. Um, So let's start back to the early explorers who really first settled here. Okay. Which were the Spaniards. Right. The Spaniards were very interesting land use planners. I, I don't think anyone's really thought about that, but Father Sarah if everyone would really spend a little time looking at his background, he actually was a a person who knew agriculture, knew climate and microclimate. And his job was actually to go up this coast of California and pick a spot for each mission and determine what crops could be planted Mm. there. That Mm -hmm. was his main job. He Mm. was there only for a week or so, and then he'd move on to his next destination and 
come back and revisit. But because the Spaniards were using that method of let's find a location where we can grow everything we will need to live and produce the food and the flowers and all the other things. Oh, I never thought about that. Yes, it's very interesting. So they brought everything from roses and lilacs to Hmm. cherry and apricot trees, avocados, grapes, you know, things that we still grow today. That's Hmm. what's so amazing about our county Mm -hmm. is our heritage came from the plants and cuttings that they brought. What did the landscape look like then? Well, as they were moving along the coast, and you know, for the most part, these uh, missions were within 25 miles of the coast, rolling hills and mountains covered with dense forest. And you know, in California, our native trees are the oaks. We have many varieties, but it was a very dense forest of oak trees in our particular county. Well, where would we look for something like that now so we'd know what that looked like? You would probably drive Highway 46 west and turn into the Adelaida District. Okay. Uh, so primarily west of Paso Robles, uh, near York Mountain Road, you'll oh. see dense forests. Okay. And you'll notice the rolling hills and the valleys. In our landscape, it was always a combination of rolling hills and valleys so that you could use the landscape in the gravity <laughs> downward oh, to move sure. things. Uh, sure. That's, oh. that's, that was important. So the trails that the Padres and their workers created were primarily from whatever location in San Miguel or San Luis Obispo down to the coast because they needed to ship things out and they they received many shipments from Spain. We have the logs that we can look at at the Santa Barbara Museum and see what was being brought in and you'd be astonished at the variety of groups of plants, of textiles, furnishings. These were all brought to our county and absorbed into our culture that we have today. It's easy to see that we are not totally dense forest anymore. Um, What caused it to change? I was thinking maybe it was cattle. Well, cattle had a role in it, but really what happened, if you think about it, we were under a Spanish control. Then remember there was a war against Mexico. Mexico's won. So they came into California and they divided it up into ranchos. Their period was relatively short here. It was from 1832 to 1846. So they divided up their land, they created ranchos, but they adapted the crops and the cattle and sheep, which had been brought by the Spanish, Mm. into their economic model. But everything changed with the gold rush. Oh, So when gold was discovered, in Europe there were famines, there were droughts, terrible wars, lots of things were creating a push to get people to leave that Mm -hmm. area. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that San Francisco became the magnet when gold was discovered. If you can imagine, we had around 8,000 people um, generally in Central California before the gold rush. During the first two years, by 1850-51, we had over 300,000 people coming into San Francisco. They were followed by a wonderful group of nurserymen. That means people who lived on the East Coast who had already gotten into the plant world and were bringing plants from Europe and creating uh, all kinds of fruits and beautiful Zinfandel grapes they were planting in Long Island and upstate New York and trying to uh, use, they were using hothouses and they were developing that Victorian taste that we always think it was kind of for sweets. Oh. So Zinfandel grapes became very important in that because the taste, the profile of flavor was exactly what people loved for dessert. Oh, no kidding. They were not making wine with them. They were thinking them as a food product and the whole nursery business just a 
in the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s on the East Coast had just blossomed. Hmm. So nurserymen saw the gold rush as a wonderful chance for them to create trade to bring plants, trees, orchards, all kinds of agricultural plants to feed people because there was no food growing here that was domesticated. Right, good point. <laughs> so gradually, by about 1852, three, four, five, you know, the gold began to peter out mm-hmm. and there began to be quite a migration of people coming south into the central coast and then further south into Southern California. Partially that was because of discrimination against French, English, German trappers and gold miners who Americans felt were interfering with their rights to have uh, claims and to to mine the gold. Mm. So what we had were these groups of nationalities and ethnic groups moving into central California. Some things don't change. All of these people were well-educated, recognized the Mediterranean climate that we have. Yes. And we're familiar with plants and agriculture that might grow and thrive here. Most of them were thinking about, you know, vegetables and fruit trees, and they weren't necessarily thinking about grapes as a crop to make wine. But it was the Mediterranean climate, I think, that caused many of them to stay here. And what's been interesting is they continued to be very close-knit in their ethnic communities, although friendly with everyone. And because of that, and because of the Homestead Act, which uh, allowed them to basically homestead a piece of property of about 160 acres Mm -hmm. for at least five years. Now, when they did that, they had to agree to build on it and to plant crops and make it a viable economic model on that 160 acres if they wanted to keep it in their own names. But may I ask you a question about that, though? We were broken into ranchos. Did the homesteaders... They weren't buying it from the rancho owners then. They were buying it from the government? That's a really good question. Well, once the Mexicans were defeated, immediately the U.S. moved into California and it became a state. They divided it into counties, and the Mexicans were able to continue owning their land. But what immediately happened is that property taxes and um, various other taxes were levied upon them and had to be paid in American dollars. And of course, they didn't have American dollars. So they ended up selling those properties in many cases, not all. I mean, we still have some very large pieces of property in this county, Mm -hmm. which are part of the original rancho. Uh, And we do have uh, descendants of the Spanish and the Mexican families Mm -hmm. from the 1800s uh, that continue to own that land, which I'm very happy to see. Yes. But there was a lot of change because we broke California up into counties. And San Luis Obispo County was one of the original 27 counties established. And we had wealthy people here, powerful people here. But we also had this mix of immigrants bringing in new money and new skills. And it actually worked out quite well where certain land was able to be homesteaded, certain land could be purchased. Um, Most people had um, a minimum of 40 acres. Some had larger amounts if they homesteaded. Right. If you're just joining us, this is KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. From our archives, a favorite interview, which originally aired in January of 2023, the grape nut Betsy Nash speaks with Libby Agron of the Wine History Project of San Luis Obispo County. So we have a lot of people moving in, and the cultures are um, getting along and learning from each other. What's the next step on our road to wines? The next step is that people began to realize that we had this 
incredible climate for growing grapes, among all other things. And they began to look at what grapes would make a good wine. Mm-hmm. This was helped along by the formation in California of viticultural commissions that worked with each district or county to help them figure out what to plant. Oh, It's an amazing model that led to the county fairs as we know today. Mm. Um, The model encouraged small villages or little townships to have competitions and vegetables and fruits and things. And as those local fairs then became, uh, you know, a mid-state fair and then a county fair and then a state fair, that system was very important in bringing to light the products that, that worked, including grapes. Oh, interesting. Okay. So those plant nurserymen that I mentioned earlier that brought all kinds of plants to California were part of that county fair system, and, and it helped them go in and help them figure out exactly what plants kind of in the Father's era mode, of what would grow best in each county. That continues to this day. UC Davis has a program, which they have maintained. The University of California has been very active in this for many years, and we have a wonderful office in our own county that helps us with irrigation and climate change and plants and uh, those experimental plantings um, and is a guide for people who live in this county. So that's the cooperative extension from UC Davis? Yes. So that continues as well. I'm seeing a lot of themes here, things that have stuck around because of the gold rush or because of migration or because of whatever. That's interesting. Not everything has changed. That's true. We have patterns that repeat themselves. So what we do see is in the 1860s and 1870s in downtown Slow, for example, We were lucky enough to have several French emigrants who recognized the climate, and Pierre Daladay was one of them, who in the 1860s married into um, a Mexican family and was able to accumulate enough cash through his carpentry business to buy property, which was much of San Luis Obispo downtown as we know it today. Oh, okay. His uh, property, uh, since he was from France and was familiar with vineyards, he, he saw a perfect uh, climate for it. He planted uh, at least 14 acres. The records say he had over 125 varieties that were planted oh my gosh. during a 20-year period. He became the first bonded winemaker, uh-huh. and he also became the first bonded distiller. Distilling is something that the Padres had brought with them because it was a way of making a concentrated wine that could then be easily preserved and shipped. Because if you make wine and you didn't have the techniques and technologies we have today and the temperature control, you couldn't really ship it too far. It was something that was consumed. Yeah. Quickly. Tell me what year we're in right about now with Daladay. In the 1860s, 1870s, 1860s. Okay. Uh, up until about the 1890s, okay. he began to lose control of his finances through some misadventures with his elder son. And he gradually lost a lot of the property, which is now the downtown area of, of San Luis Obispo. But what's important is he left the heritage from his French culture in the form of the Daladay adobe. Yes, I love it. In downtown San Luis Obispo. And that's something that's open to the public. But that one block that's left, if you can imagine, that's where the winery was located And the vineyards went all the way from the uh, Daladay Adobe on Pacific Street uh, to the Mission today. Okay. And he was inspired by the fact that the grapevines that were still somehow struggling to live at the Mission, which had long been transferred to private property or had 
either been abandoned vineyards or in some cases leased them out to others. Okay, but there still were some when he was there. He could see them. we're almost, what are we, 90 years after? The mission was truly built and functioning by the late 1790s. Uh, we don't know exactly when the vineyards were planted there, but we're guessing by 1800. We have mm. some evidence that okay. they were definitely there. Cuttings from those mission grapes, because it was the mission grape that was brought by the Spaniards, can still be found in our county. We've been documenting them, and they were spread to the San Miguel Mission, to the Ascencia, which is now part of the Santa Margarita Ranch, right? not to the Edna Valley. They had to be near water. Uh, that was the agricultural techniques the Spanish used involved water. Sure. They didn't dry farm. I know lots of people think they did, but they irrigated. So they were the first to bring irrigation to our county <laughs> and water use. Um, what's interesting, though, is that the French then were more in the downtown area with people living nearby. So there, there were farmers' markets where grapes were sold. Mm. Mr. Dalladay's winery, as I said, was the first commercial. So he was actually making a lot of wine, and it was distributed, and it was in some cases quoted to be as fine as French wine, mm. made from mission grapes, but from a variety of French grapes. Right. Out of hundreds that he planted varieties my god yes and we're trying to document all of those now if you remember there was a phylloxera epidemic you know phylloxera is an insect which goes for the roots of the vine and it really hit very hard in france and in san francisco we had a france embassy or consulate and that consulate reached out to all the French people that he knew were within California to give them cuttings brought mm. from France mm. to plant in the hopes that they could get rid of the phylloxera and then take cuttings from the new cuttings and send them back to France to reestablish the various varieties that were wiped out. So Mr. Dalladay was an important part of that, and that's probably why he had access to the cuttings of so oh, many varieties. Oh, I see. Okay. What was wonderful is that he shared that information. I mean, he shared it with people, uh, the Ditmas family and the uh, Hasbrook family who were in the upper Arroyo Grande Valley, who today we can say that the oldest still working vineyard in our county is owned by Sausalito Canyon. And it was started by Henry Ditmas, an Englishman, but revived, luckily, by Bill Greenow and his wife, Nancy, who have worked so hard to continue that vineyard. And uh, the wines that they make are from this old vine Zinfandel that is remarkable. We're going to pour a Zinfandel. Excuse me. It has some sediment, so I'm straining it and aerating it a little bit. It's a 2017 Zin by Glunts from Dante Ducey Vineyard. And may I just say how delicious this is. Well, I'm excited that you brought the bottle that shows it's from the Ducey Vineyard because that brings me to the next really important wave of pioneers who came into the county. Um, And that's the Italians. I don't want to skip over the Yorks. I want to go back to that. But but I do want to talk about the Italians for a moment uh, because... The Italians who arrived in our county, unlike other counties of California, were from northern Italy near the Swiss border. Mm -hmm. So they didn't come with any knowledge of winemaking or growing grapes. It was too cold in their climate. So they were wood clearers, woodsmen, as they called themselves, and they were also dairymen. And so when they came here, they came following family members, many from the same village, and created a community which is still very much uh, alive in uh, Templeton 
in our county. The One of the uh, interesting families was the Ducey family, Sylvester Ducey. He came to the county um, around 1920 to visit a brother that was already here involved in clearing wood. Oh, okay. Uh, and trees in our dense forest so that there could be fields and um, uh, grapes and cattle. And Sylvester Ducey actually was very much of an entrepreneurial person, and it was hard labor wasn't for him. He really had accumulated enough money. He was in his forties by this time, and he went into the Paso Robles area, which was developing as a community, bought a hotel, and he established the first delicatessen, Italian delicatessen. Oh. And he had a restaurant in some of my documentation that says it was Italian. Some says it was French. Perhaps it was French Italian. Could have been Swiss. <laughs> <laughs> but he definitely brought the Italian culture uh, into our community in Paso Robles. And then from there, um, he began to uh, look at the possibility uh, and discuss with his fellow Italians that were already here in the community the possibility of planting vineyards. Now, they didn't really have any knowledge about this, but what had happened that would cause them to even think this? Well, prohibition had happened. Oh, oh. So, so what's that, 1920? It, it went into effect in 1920, which meant that you could not be a commercial winemaker, sell or transport wine. You could make wine at home. You could do um, over 200 gallons, approximately 200 gallons per household. So it's not per person, but per household. <laughs> and Italians, like many cultures, had always made wine at home. Even if they were not really growing grapes, they'd get grapes from a neighbor or something okay. and make their, their wine. And so the Italians in our county realized that in every American city, there was a very large Italian population that needed grapes to make wine and were into home winemaking. So that was one trend going on as soon as Prohibition went into effect. But then home making in general became a huge thing. You'd find ads in magazines. You could buy concentrated bricks of Zinfandel grapes. Oh, no kidding. You could buy juice and you could yeah. take it home and do whatever you wanted. You just couldn't <laughs> transport it. You couldn't sell it, but hmm. you could make it. Hmm. So the Italians saw a business opportunity. They were already farming. They already had dairy cows. And what they decided to do was, let's plant vineyards. We can ship all these grapes to all these Italian communities. We have connections, because they do. All the Italians at that time had connections. You know, it was the 1920s. Yeah. Trains were running. Yeah. We had uh, stations in uh, Santa Margarita area, Paso, and they shipped Zinfandel grapes to the East Coast, but also importantly into California's markets, Los Angeles and San Francisco, which were huge distribution points. And that's uh, the, and like every other county, you know, where the, the production of grapes dropped away, people abandoned their vineyards. Not our county. <laughs> we have all these wonderful microclimates where we can grow all kinds of grapes, but Zinfandel ruled because it was the most familiar grape and sweet grape and it was met the palate of the times. So the Italians doubled, tripled, quadrupled the amount of land that was planted in grapes. So they brought a very strong influence into our county mm -hmm. as a source yes. of premium grapes. And so we're looking at 1922 when? Well, till 1934, when each of the major five families of Italians then immediately were bonded as wineries and started making wine. If you're just joining us, this is KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. From our archives, the grape nut Betsy Nash speaks with Libby Agron of the Wine History Project of San Luis Obispo County. 
And this brings us to another really important contribution of our county to history. Okay. Imagine, as I said earlier, all the other major Italian wineries and many other wineries in California had shut down, abandoned their fields, gave up. Wow. But once Prohibition ended, they all wanted to get back in business. I shouldn't say all, but many did. What happened? A lot of those were Italians. They contacted the Italians in our county and said, what can we do? Um, and they said, we have, we're all ready to go. We're bonded. We have our grapes. We'll make wine. We'll send it up to you in railroad tank cars. You can bottle it under your own label. Just <laughs> buy it from Brilliant. Us. Brilliant. And that's how the California wine industry got back on huh. its feet. Huh. Because when you think about it, if you have to replant a vineyard in the 1930s, yes. you're four or five years away from really a harvest of grapes that would make good wine. And those vineyards that they just left go, I mean, think of all the work that would have taken and the capital outlay and all of that. That was brilliant. It was brilliant. And another thing it established is we, we had always been shipping grapes from our county somewhere else. We weren't known for making great wines, even though there were great wines made here. Oh. And, there, and there were wines actually in the late 1800s that were winning awards, 1900, 1912. Uh, the German population in the eastern part of the Paso Robles area definitely were doing very well um, mm -hmm. in, in terms of marketing their wines. So, you know, we had successful winemakers, but the volume of grapes were really sent out of the county okay. to other winemakers. Okay. You talked about the five families. Was that, was yes. that what you said? Well, can you name them? I of course you can. can. Of course you can. <laughs> we're doing an exhibit on this very topic about what the Italians have contributed to the culture of San Luis Obispo County because I don't think anyone really has looked at it this way before. And I couldn't have seen it either until I'd spent a lot of time interviewing and documenting the family histories of these people. So we have the Ducey family, yes. which brought up this conversation, uh, who have five generations in basically the same spots. So those are major, important, old vines in Findel mm. vineyards. Mm -hmm. But Mike has really made a tremendous um, addition to the family a heritage by creating vineyards in other places in the county and growing many varieties. And his daughter, Janelle, is really the first, certainly the first woman winemaker in the family that is commercially available. I want to answer your question about all five of these families. Okay, we have the Ducies. We have the Ducies. We have the Pazentes. That's the, the first sin I ever had. So good. Yes. That was my jug wine. Well, and Rhoda. Is the Rhoda another the yes, family? Yes, okay. Rhoda's another family, a those, third family. Th those were my two first, 1969, when I moved up here to go to Poly. But I bet you wouldn't know this. The very first Italian who had a first winery and the first vineyard planted was Lorenzo Norelli. Oh, Norelli. No, I didn't. The How did I miss that? <laughs> well, um, probably because at that particular time he was doing something else. Oh. I mean, he um, had moved his vineyards. But I would just say that in, uh, in around 1917, well, he and his wife bought property adjacent to the York Mountain Winery. Mm, okay. He worked in the fields, the vineyards of York Mountain and was trained uh, in viticulture by that family. When I talked about the Italians shipping yeah. after Prohibition wine to other wineries in California, right. they did that in partnership with the York family, who also were, were making all kinds of wonderful Zinfandel. Mm. So it was the combination of the two sending their 
pressed grape wine to uh, these other vineyards and wineries in Northern California. We're going to have some final thoughts here with Libby Agron of the uh, Wine History Project of San Luis Obispo County. And I've asked this of many of my guests on this program. What about the future for wines? And I know we can't spend a whole hour talking about this, but the future of wines in San Luis Obispo County. We've made it from we've made it for over 200 years. And what's going to happen with climate change? None of us know for sure, but what I think, and I've one of my mentors on this is John Albin. I do feel because we have such a variety of microclimates in our county um, that we can continually experiment with different varieties to see what will continue to grow. There are some places in the world that where wine has been produced, you know, for thousands of years. Right. I do believe myself that San Luis Obispo County is one of those places. I think we have all of the elements with, we're lucky to be very close to the ocean, Mm -hmm. that fog layer, you know, as long as it continues, will provide uh, the, the nuances that are necessary to maintain our different terroirs in the county. So, um... And we probably have to be developing more and more drought-resistant. Drought-resistant, right. Uh, we have to work on our water, uh, how we manage water in our county. is yes. a very big issue. Yes. And uh, we have to look at how we produce the wines, too, and, and the ways in which we can do it with, with the least amount of, of water and mm-hmm. waste in our county. But we have um, great potential, I think, much more than other areas, and we're very accessible. We're accessible to the ocean, we're accessible to the north, to the south, and I think that also makes us, as a center point in the state, an extremely important place for wine production, continuing our history that goes back to, you know, exporting grapes in the 1860s to Los Angeles. I mean, it all started there and um, continues to this day. Well, that's, so that means both economically, it should, we should stay solvent, if you will, or thrive, but also because of just of the climate itself. We're in a pretty temperate zone. Um, and as long as we're willing to be flexible, am I hearing that correctly, with the varieties we choose and and more perhaps creative with the way in which we produce the wines that we should still be okay? I think so. We have wonderful soils here. Remember, we have a lot of volcanic activity here, great yeah. volcanic soils. Um, so yes, I, I do believe that we will... If you and I could peek in in about a thousand years, <laughs> I think we'd still see wine production. Well, that, that's a great, great way to end our talk. Libby, thank you so much. This has just been fascinating. appreciate your time. Well, please, everyone, go to winehistoryproject.org. I want you to, to know that there are many ways we share this information, and whether or not you're a wine drinker, the history of our county is so important, uh, and I want you all to share in it. Thank you. You bet. Glad to have you. That was a conversation from our archives. A favorite interview, which originally aired in January of 2023, the grape nut Betsy Nash speaks with Libby Agron of the Wine History Project of San Luis Obispo County. You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org. Mm-hmm.